You're listening to Scaling Up Services, where we speak with entrepreneurs, authors, business experts, and thought leaders to give you the knowledge and insights you need to scale your service-based business faster and easier. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeld. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash Thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash Thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Scaling Up Services. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Larry Perkins. He is CEO and founder at Sierra Constellation Partners. We're going to talk to him about his experience in building and scaling service companies. Larry's had a lot of different experiences. We're going to talk to him about a couple of them and hear his insights, talk about his journey, what he's learned, what he can pass on and learn in terms of advice, insights that might be helpful for folks in the audience here. With that, Larry, welcome to the program. Thanks, Bruce. Really looking forward to being here. Yeah, likewise. So let's talk a little bit about a background and you know, kind of how you got into all this, and, and then we'll kind of get into your experiences on service companies. But what's the backstory? What was your, uh, how, how did you get into business? What was your professional background? Sure. You know, coming out of school, I graduated with a degree in uh, business administration with an emphasis in finance. Like many, I went to go work at a, at a large consulting firm right out of school, Arthur Anderson, when it used to exist on their consulting side. Um, <laughs> yeah. Was successful there from a work standpoint, really kind of my first professional work experience and was good at the work side, didn't love working at a giant organization, you know, felt like I thrived in that environment, but, you know, with 100,000 employees worldwide, it felt a little bit like a cog in the machine. And then ended up going from there after getting promoted, I ended up going into investment banking. I didn't really know why, but I, I knew that investment bankers made a lot of money, so it seemed like something I wanted to do. But then once I got there, I realized I didn't love investment banking and I'm reasonably young. I, I guess I still identify as young. I'm 43. And that was at the time of the dot-com bust, you know, kind of in that 2000, 2001 range. And that's when I started working with distressed companies, turnaround companies. And I, I found a passion for it. I really like working on that type of stuff. I didn't love the firm I was at, but I did like working in those circumstances. I think what resonated with me was something really needed to happen as opposed to kind of pontificating on something and then hoping that they do it, like you see sometimes in management consulting. So I really liked the urgency of it all. So then I went to a firm that was doing the kind of work that I do right now, kind of turnaround consulting, management consulting, interim management, whatever you want to call it, uh, mm-hmm. and worked there and had a great experience. It was a, a smallish firm. I think at its peak, it was about 40 people. I was the youngest one there by a long ways. But it was it was one of those situations that I, I took to the work. I liked the work. I liked the people I was around a lot. Long story made short, I think probably the best lesson I took out of that besides learning my craft and trade was you really need to run one of these businesses right. I felt like that firm ultimately kind of collapsed upon itself. And uh, it was a shame because it was a great group of people. But I took that experience and I went to really what I think is the largest and best firm in our industry. It's a firm called Alvarez and Marsal. And I I had what I I call kind of my existential crisis. I was 29 years old. I remember starting (laughs) in June 19th of 2006. And then 4th of July weekend, I had this epiphany and said that, you know, this is the job I've been trying to get for four years. I finally get the job and I'm really not that happy with it all. Yeah. And that's really what launched my entrepreneurial journey uh, and, you know, basically made it through the end of the year, saved up six months of rent 
you know, the, the, the plan was to try and see if I could turn it into a business doing it for myself. I always find the reverse narrative is much cleaner than the actual one going on at the time. You know, at that point, I was sick of working for someone, sick of traveling as much as I was. And I had this kind of uh, mid-20s fit to figure out how I was going to run my own business. And then long story made short, it, it just kind of worked. I started the firm in January 2007, really more of like kind of a hope and a prayer. It ended up working out. We grew it up a little bit. Long story made short, ended up selling that firm in 2010. Mm-hmm. Had a reasonably good experience working there, but at the end of it, I identified that I really am, am more of an entrepreneur and builder than I am kind of a worker uh, somewhere. So mm-hmm. I ended up buying back the firm at the end of 2012 in the team, the client base we had at that point. I lost the name in the trade otherwise and effectively relaunched Sierra at the beginning of 2013. And now we've grown just a crazy amount relative to where we were before and everything else. And now we have offices in five cities in the United States and have been growing at you know 35% compound per year. Uh, and it's been a fun run. But in so many words, that was that's kind of my career trajectory. Yeah, no, that's exciting. I'm curious, what told you that you were really an entrepreneur? Like as, as you got into these situations and, and realized you weren't happy, like what was it that you realized about yourself or what you wanted that told you that you really need to be more on an entrepreneurial route? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And, and I've subsequently done a bunch of work on myself and you know self-improvement and things like that uh-huh. along the way. But at the end of it, the way that it manifested, at least with me, is it sounds silly, but I had trouble waking up in the morning. I'm a yeah. You know, I, I know I talk fast, but I, I'm a very high energy type of person and I shoot out of bed in the morning. I happen to be a morning person too. So, you know, I kind of wake up ready to take on the day type of thing. And then when I was working for someone else, I would find days where I was kind of dawdling around the house a little bit, <laughs> not getting ready to go, you know, I don't know, playing with the cat longer than I would otherwise, you know, things like that, you know, pre-kids that you do. And yeah. then I just realized, like, you know, what the heck's going on? And my wife yeah. was much smarter than me. She kind of figured out, like, you're just kind of not yourself. They, they always are. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. And, and much more aware of what's going on, yeah. too. But it was kind of one of those situations where I didn't even realize at the time I was just kind of in this malaise. You know, I put on a little yeah. bit of weight. I was not really excited mm-hmm. about going into work. I was kind of procrastinating on things. These are just things that are anathema to me. And then, you know, I finally reflected on it and just actually thought about it for a second with, you know, with help from my wife and just said, you know what, it's just not working out. Yeah. And nice people. I really liked the vast majority of the people I was yeah. working with. Great platform, yeah. like all those sorts of things. I mean, there's some economic things that weren't working out the same way. But at the end of it, I, I really liked, you know, building. I like creating all those sorts of things that when you're working for someone else, you don't necessarily have the same level of autonomy over yeah. yeah. And anything about as you kind of reflect on your skill set or the things that, you know, kind of superpowers, things that you were particularly good at that you think contributed to kind of the successes you've had and things that you've had to kind of realize and anything that you realize you're not so good at that you've had to kind of, you know, avoid or find, you know, ways of kind of offsetting for or compensating for? Yeah, 100%. Great question. You know, I think the list of things I'm not good at is much longer than the list of things I'm good at. I mean, I think in some ways the list of things I'm, I'm good at is. I'm really good at the relationship side. I'm not afraid to put myself out there and, and try something and do something. And if I'm wrong, I fix it along the way. I and mean, I think realistically from a super set, a superpower type standpoint, it, not sure how super it is, but I'm willing to try something. And yeah. then if it doesn't work, try something else. And I think from an entrepreneur standpoint, particularly in a services-based business, you got to differentiate in a way. You got to try different things. You know, I think I think you got to be willing to put yourself out there a little bit. And none of it, in retrospect, was that risky. But at the time, it seemed scary. So I think yeah. you know, being able to get over your fear is probably part of it. You know, the list of things that I'm not good at. As we've scaled, you know, we're more than 40 people now at this point. Gotten to be a lot more complex. You know, I, the biggest trick I've had now is outsourcing it to people that a like doing it and b are good at it. Um, as yeah. opposed to trying to keep control. And for what it's worth, it's an ongoing process. I'd be curious right. to get your perspective too. I mean, there's 
stuff that makes sense when we're 20 people that I could do that I can't do at 40 and stuff that I could do at five people that I can't do at 100 that I think that I need to be aware of along the way. But I think at the end of it, you know, bringing in good people to do these things is very liberating. But from the mindset standpoint, you know, when you're running your business, it all feels like overhead at a certain point. Um, yeah. And yeah. The, probably the biggest pivot I made is you know, it's, it's only overhead if they're not doing a good job. It's terribly accretive or, or good for the business if they're doing a good job. And I think getting through that was a big step for me. Yeah, that kind of, I always find that the, there's a series of shifts you have to make. <laughs> and, and each time the shift is letting go of the things that served you well before, but are not going to serve you well at the next level. Uh, yeah. You know, and it's just being able to make that transition. I, and I, honestly, I find that the companies that scale the, the most quickly are the ones where leadership is able to do that fast, right? And it's, it's the, the, what gets held up or what holds a company back is when, you know, leadership holds on to a way of doing something or a mindset or, you know, kind of a, a set of thinking or a set of assumptions that, that it is no longer applicable at the next stage of growth. And, um, you know, you have to be able to be willing to make those changes and, and make them quickly, you know, if you really want to scale fast. Tell me a bit about the business model in terms of like any, anything that you noticed in terms of what was working or, or things that have served you well in terms of just how you've approached the business that you're in, whether it's, you know, process, strategic differentiation, where you focused your, you know, from a customer point of view. Give me some sense around that. Yeah, sure thing. I mean, at the end of it, you know, in a human capital business, which any services business really is, you know, we've, we've been lucky, blessed, smart, whatever you want to call it, about hiring really good people. Mm -hmm. But what we probably didn't do early enough is add in the process and systems and things like that that can can wrangle a bigger group of people. You know, when you have a group of four, five, six people, you can keep your fingers, you know, in, in all the yeah. highs at, very, at various different moments to make sure that nothing's being dropped. But as you scale and when you look at, you know, think about the very large services firms, like the large law firms, you know, the, the head of that firm doesn't know exactly what's going on on ABC case or deal or whatever you want to call yeah. it, but they have systems and processes and accountabilities and checkpoints and all those sorts of things that make sure that for the most part, they have a consistent product. And, and mm -hmm. that's one of the things that I wish I did earlier. For what it's worth, I'm not oriented that way either. Even though I'm a turnaround person, I'm very much crisis to crisis. That's my strength. Mm -hmm. And what I realize, if you're actually trying to build something to last, you can't be going crisis to crisis. I think yeah. you need to be. Uh, you need to add intention to your various different processes to make sure that it's successful. But that's again, you learn along the way. That's probably the biggest lesson learning I've had over the last handful of years. Yeah. In terms of, I mean, you've mentioned talent a couple of times here. I mean, what? Um I guess any secrets, any approaches to talent, either in terms of like where you find people, how you recruit them, how you interview, any kind of lessons learned that you think have really contributed to your success? Yeah, I think, you know, our best recruiters are our existing employees. And I feel like if we're doing our job right, you know, they'll tell their buddies or friends or old roommates or old colleagues to take a look at us, right? And there's a little bit of birds of a feather, you know, flocking together. So I think mm -hmm. that got us to a point. As we've scaled, we've needed to identify what those key themes are. And we've done a series of assessments. We brought on an internal recruiter and all those sorts of things to figure out you're kind of mapping what works and what doesn't work. And I'm not saying we're perfect. We've, we've definitely missed on some people along the way too, but trying to identify what the consistent themes are. You know, we're going through this process right now. We actually just did a strategic offsite a couple of weeks ago of really mapping out values and really where we're trying to take the business. So we have a little bit more articulate roadmap, but I think mm -hmm. Understanding those values is key, and I think one of the things we've identified already is literally the first thing we have in our job description is, you know, no jerks need apply. And I think at the <laughs> end of it, you can't work with people you don't like working with, right? And I think yeah. that's 
thematically important, both from a workplace standpoint, but also from a client delivery standpoint. You know, if we have a bunch of jerks, we're not going to get very much repeat business type of thing. So yeah. we need to make sure we have people that do that. In a certain degree, you know, we have a very high-end consulting company. You know, yeah. there's an understanding that competency is there, right? You just, you know that it's going to be there. That said, having really smart people doesn't necessarily mean that they're A, nice people, or yeah. B, uh, good communicators. So you need to figure out a way to communicate really well. And then the, the hardest one to sort out is, and one of the things we continue to struggle with is, and not struggle with, too strong of a word, but that we're working on is yeah. trying to emphasize kind of what I call the front of the jersey instead of the back of the jersey. Uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, I live in Los Angeles. We're Dodger fans. We're hopefully going to go to the World Series. I want them working for the Dodgers, <laughs> you know, not the not the back of the jersey type of thing. Yeah, yeah. And that's... You know, as we've scaled, that's a challenge, right? Because for us to get the level of talent that we had before, we had to create economic incentives that really make it worth working sure. here as opposed to somewhere else. But it creates a little bit of a mercenary culture if you're not careful about it. And we've taken mm-hmm. great pains to avoid that. But part of it is just you know natural human being stuff. You have incentive schemes, people are going to develop that way. But taking that and then evolving it to say, hey, listen, guys, if we if we do this right, we can all do really, really well here, but we need to work as a collective as opposed to an individual. That's probably the biggest thing. I'm curious, like how you see that in an interview process. Like, is there, are there questions you ask or the things you're looking for? Is, is there nuance there? Like what, what is the hat tip that tells you that, hey, this might not be a good cultural fit? Yeah, I think somewhat seeing where they've worked before and trying to identify mm-hmm. what cultures they've come from, right? I mean, they come from a place mm-hmm. where they're kind of single shingles or individuals, they tend to kind of keep that type of, not as a rule, not all the time, but something, you know, is a symbol, I suppose, is, you know, if they've been on their own for a long time, there's a chance that they're going to be a little bit more mercenary. You know, if they've worked with a place that knows good culture and is trained for good culture, I think that's part of it. But I think we also just do a lot of hypotheticals and case studies, specifically on communication. What are you trying to do with your career? You know, one of the key questions we ask is, you know, are you trying to be is your goal in life to, to work at this place for 10 years or is it to be a CEO or is it go be a hedge fund manager? What do you want to do with your life? And then trying to understand where they, how they respond to that question has been a big one for us. Yeah. As you've grown, I'm always curious on how leaders sort of maintain a balance between sort of growing in general or growing quickly and this kind of cultural you know, maintaining the culture or balancing the culture. I mean, have you found any kind of, you know, systems or, or ways of kind of figuring out how these things trade off or if they trade off for you as you've scaled? Yeah, I mean, it's an ongoing process for us. I mean, I can tell you what we're doing now. It starts with communication. I think historically it's been a little bit more of the informal, just the text or check-in, how's everyone doing? But mm-hmm. now even at our you know reasonably small size, 40-ish people, that's hard to do. You know, it's more than yeah. one person can do. So now we're focusing a little bit more on having a calendar communication, training, we started something we call a no to grow process, which is effectively kind of like a Zoom training in the COVID world of various mm-hmm. different things ranging from technical things all the way through to mixology or wine tasting. I mean, just trying to get reps of people spending time with each other to kind yeah. of, it's a, I suppose, an analog for the water cooler in some ways. Yeah. So mm-hmm. get people around just talking to each other. We just did a sales training last week that I think was pretty successful. But at the end of it, it's, it's the communication that seems to be the glue that keeps people together. So just finding ways for people to communicate, both formally but also informally, along the way. So you're you're getting that space between type of moment uh, from a Dave Matthews song, you know, where you're, you actually have that time where you're talking to someone and it's not about a specific project or what you're doing on a deal. You know, it's talking about what you're doing this weekend or what you and your family are doing. You know, getting some of that glue between people seems to be really important. Yeah, 
Yeah, interesting. So just walk us through a little bit about the sort of the engagement cycle, how you typically work with a company, like when you, you know, how do you engage them? What do you engage them? What is the work that you do? What is the outcome you're trying to achieve? Just kind of walk us through a little bit about how you actually work. Yeah, not a problem. So we're 100% a referral-based business, right? So we spend an awful lot of time getting that call to talk to someone else, right? So we, we spend virtually all our marketing time focused on our brand and making sure that we're very competent when we get brought in. Because Fundamentally, what we do is we get brought in when what I what I describe as a, a financial promise has been broken, right? You take out a loan, you can't pay it back as fast as you wanted to or on time or uh, at all. And uh, usually the bank gets kind of grumpy about that and the bank will say, hey, you need to bring in somebody to do that, to help figure that out. So we get hired directly by the company, usually on behalf of the financial stakeholder, whether it's a bank on one side, all the way through to a private equity firm or hedge fund. You know, your EBITDA was supposed to be $20 million and it came in at five. Mm-hmm. What happened? And there's this cycle of when that happens, you are either put on a list or said, hey, you need to hire someone. And we're hired directly by the company. So not on behalf of the bank, not on behalf of the, the hedge fund, anybody else, but we're hired directly on behalf of the company. Uh, and then effectively, what we try and do is diagnose on one side and then figure out what the, the recovery plan is from there. And yeah. we'll specifically be one of really two roles. One is an advisor to the company, so really trying to help them figure out the strategy and then the people in place will continue to do that. In certain circumstances, we also get brought in directly to run it. So we'll be the interim chief executive. There's a term of art in our business called a chief restructuring officer, where effectively you take on a fiduciary duty on behalf of your clients to, to run the company through a period of time. It's usually somewhere, I used to say three to six months. In a COVID world, it's probably more like four to seven months um, and trying to figure out and really execute on how to get them out of a, a tough financial situation. How that manifests is it's it's liquidity management on one side, making sure that you understand where all your money is going, making sure it's going to the right places at the right time. But also, really, from a strategic standpoint, you know what makes sense in the business, what doesn't make sense in the business. How do we recover? Do we need to bring in an investment banker and sell off pieces of the business? Can we reorganize the debt so we can pay it off over a, a more agreeable timeline? Things like that is what we really do once we get there. It's ultimately kind of an interim leadership role, whether it's directly leading a company or working specifically to help the leadership there help out. The, Kind of the way I describe it is kind of like a special forces team that comes in to really fix a tough financial situation. Yeah. And is there any indicators? I'm curious what you look at when you first come in in terms of, yeah, what's going to give you a, a sense of, you know, is this fixable? How do we fix it? Like, what are the telltales for you about a company situation? And then to, to the extent that you've got experience in service companies, you know, is there anything specific for service companies that you look at when you come into those situations? Yeah, I mean, ultimately cash is king, right? So, I mean, looking at, at how the company fundamentally generates cash, the thing that we work on a lot is, you know, having a very short term, like a quarter out by week, 13 week cash flow, we call it, where you have cash coming in, cash going out. I use it for my business. And I think what it highlights is, okay, you could have really high revenue, but if you're not collecting your bills, it doesn't do anything. And I don't care if that's a manufacturing company all the way through to a services company, but trying to really understand the cash conversion cycle, you know, how do you actually get paid? Mm-hmm. How do you pay your bills? And hopefully cash coming in is greater than your bills going out type of thing, at least over a, a modest period of time. That's probably the first thing. You know, the other thing we, we frequently look at is let history be a guide in some ways, right? You know, we work with middle market companies that we define as kind of sub-billion dollar companies. Probably on average, it's 200, 300, 400 million dollars. But chances are, you know, when they were doing 50, 60, 70 million dollars, they were making a lot of money because you can't get to 200 if you weren't at 50 at one point. And you look at, you know, the signs of the past, ratios, what was your overhead like at that point? You know, how are you actually 
uh, different if you line up the company on a percentage basis now versus where you were before and try and recover some of the things in the past? Were there a couple strategic decisions? Did you get into a new business line? Did you open a new plant? Did you did you start a new group or office, especially in services businesses? Did that not work out? I think I think those are the places that we look. We let history be a guide. Yeah, I'm curious. What is it about the way in which or the fact that you come in and the way that you do that allows you to kind of either see these things or consider options that the existing management, you know, is not able to see or isn't willing to consider? I mean, is there, I'm just kind of curious what what that's about. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's probably two things. Number one, you know, we work with companies in situations like this all the time. So we do have tools and kind of IP that we use that, that helps diagnose situations a lot. But then the other thing I look at is the talent level of the people we have is just, yeah, I keep talking about talent, but I mean, that's at the end of the day, our business is how I describe it, a talent arbitrage. You know, I rent out people who are hyper-competent for a very short period of time at a premium that neither my employees would want to work at the client site long-term nor would the client want to have my people because they're expensive to have them long-term. So you have a short burst of expertise, really situational expertise you can bring to these situations and take the lessons of the past. I mean, how many times have, when we go into situations where there's past due accounts payable, the bank is grumpy, you have salespeople not delivering, you know, all those sorts of things, lawsuits that are out there, all those sorts of things uh, that we see 80 times a year that people may see once in a career. So I think taking those lessons and leveraging them is really what we do best. Uh, and I guess, what do you feel makes you unique relative to the other folks that, that do this work? Is there an area that you focus on, a situation that you focus on, a skill that you have, IP? What, what distinguishes you? Yeah, good question. I think two things. I think that no jerks need to apply thing is really important. And, and how that plays out in our work is that you know we're solutions-oriented. We're, we're trying to find the right answer. And honestly, we give the benefit of the doubt. Usually, a founder, CEO who's taken a company to be you know, $200, $300 million dollars, they're smart people, right? They've made a couple of yeah. bad calls along the way, but I think given the calibration of just you know, genuinely nice human people that we have here, I think they look at it and say, okay, what went wrong and try and break down people to a place where say, to really get to that answer as opposed to make the assumption that everyone's a dummy or they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. That's so easy to do in our business. And I think we take yeah. great pains to go to people and say, hey guys, they just they just got in a bad spot. You know, How many $300 million businesses have you started, right? Yeah, they're exactly. smart people. You know, just something went wrong and it was probably a couple different things we can probably make some peace here because a bunch of fighting doesn't do anything for anybody realistically Mm -hmm. so you got to get to a place where you understand what happened to get them there and then you have to communicate a why it happened because there's always a little bit of the why that the financial stakeholders need to know but then more importantly what are you going to do about it and i think that's where Mm -hmm. we really where we really thrive. Um, you know, we also don't have the bias of history, right? We don't have the same yeah. cows or other things that are out there. We're not committed to an, an idea that three years ago made a ton of sense, but right now it doesn't make any sense. So I think we have just an unbiased look at it whenever we go into situations. And at the end of it, the math doesn't lie, right? If it was supposed to be a division that was going to make 20% per year and it's losing 20% per year, the math bears that out. And I think the people we bring to the table can usually communicate that in numbers in a way that every, everyone agrees with when we're done with it. Yeah. I'm curious if on average or, you know, how often you kind of feel like, you know, it was a kind of a mistake in strategy or a mistake in execution <laughs> in terms of like these situations that you run into. Was it just like a bad idea in the beginning and we need to change the idea or was it like, hey, it was a great idea. It just it did not get executed appropriately and we need to rethink the execution of this. Yeah, it's some combination of both. And I mean, I think in the 2020 construct with the pace of innovation and technology changing so much, 
you know, it could have been a great idea three years ago, but then you had a competitor come in and try and solve it. I, re I remember working with a transportation company, for example, you know, that was effectively doing shuttle buses and rentals and things like that. They never thought Uber would be as big yeah. as it is, right? I mean, and that's not because they made a bad call. It was a really good idea in 2017. No one would have thought that Uber would have eaten their lunch then, right? And that's part of what we bring to the table is, hey guys, it doesn't matter. I mean, Uber came in. You didn't know Uber was coming in and going to dominate, you know, this space. It just didn't work out and let's move on. And that's okay. And I think that's one of the things we bring to the table. I mean, ultimately, I think that, you know, to give you a direct answer, I think execution is what it is the vast majority of the time. Um, yeah. Especially in middle market businesses, it's usually execution. But you know, sometimes it could be just a bit strategic misfire or something exogenous happens out there in the world. I mean, I mean, look what's going on right now with you know the pandemic, right? I oh mean, yeah, we're working yeah. with a bunch of restaurants as you would expect someone in the turnaround business to work with right now. It's not that you know a casual dining restaurant was a bad idea nine months mm -hmm. ago. It's just. A casual dining restaurant that can only have 30% of their people is a bad idea right now. Uh, so mm -hmm. I think trying to parse through what actually happened to get to the answer, I think that's really important. Yeah. I'm curious because there's always this um, you know phrase when I work with strategy with companies, it's, we don't know what's going to happen, but we know something's going to happen you know, <laughs> like in terms that. of like these things. Yeah. And like, so do you find that, you know, successful companies or companies that run into kind of challenges, like there's how they kind of deal with risk or how they kind of deal with uncertainty around some of these things? And, and you know, are there companies that deal with this better and companies that don't? What's your sense on that? Yeah, I, th I think people who measure bet along the way, you know, it's, it's not like you check in two years later and say, hey, did that work? But you're checking against milestones and checking against how this is working so you can pull the plug before you're fully committed to it. I think sometimes yeah. that's something that I think the best companies really do well is they can ascertain along the way is, hey, I know we were making this bet that we we're going to be able to do transportation just going back to that. But hey, there are these guys coming in here doing this really, really well and really, really fast. And by the way, they have a $54 billion valuation. So I think they're going to outspend us. You know, I think I think the people that can pivot more quickly are, are the ones that really thrive. The ones that, you know, double down and triple down and quadruple down along the way, those are the ones <laughs> That probably uh, struggle a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, any any advice you give to leaders of service companies that are that are looking to grow and scale? You know, in terms of things they should be aware of, thinking about, keeping their attention on as they as they grow the business. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's really what your podcast is all about, right? I mean, be mindful of culture, be mindful of processes, be mindful ultimately of your human capital, because in a services business, again, that's all yeah. you have, right? So if you're yeah. if you're treating people like cogs in the machine, the machine's going to break pretty quickly, right? You really need to focus on making the employee experience as good as possible, leaning into developing and teaching your people, making sure you're listening to what they're saying, making sure, particularly in, in my side of the business, you know, it's a high-end kind of management consulting firm is giving them, giving this talent that I keep talking about a, a career trajectory. You know, are we, yeah. are we building something that you can work at in 10, 15 years, right? If you want to stay here 10, 15 years from now, because at the end of it, these people have all the options in the world. And I think that if you respect people's choices and what they can do and try and make this the best choice for them, I think that's ultimately what you have to do for scaling a business like this. Yeah, I always say that you can't scale the company unless you scale the people, right? And that's because it's just that that's what's going to drive it. And it's going to cap it out if you if you really don't focus on learning and development within your, particularly within your leadership ranks. Yeah, and I, I think it's something, I mean, just to, to further, I mean, yeah. I've said this multiple times, I don't think I've said it out loud that often externally, but you know, we want to build a company that we want to work at too, right? If you're yeah. if you're adding a bunch of nonsense just because you, you read nonsense is supposed to happen, that's a bad idea. I don't want to work at that place. You know, I've I've uh, 
I've tried and failed working for other people a bunch of times. So I think the takeaway besides being entrepreneurial is that they do a bunch of stuff that I don't think is necessary. So at least take my take of what's necessary and do those things and don't do the things that you don't need to do. I guess that's another yeah. side of it. Yeah, no, that's great. Larry, this has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you and the work that you do, what's the best way to get that information? Yeah, I mean, the website for Sierra Constellation is out there. It's S-C-P-L-L-C, like Sam Charlie Peter LLC.com. And then also wrote a book about, you know, building the business it's called Don't Be a Stranger, and we have a website for the book, don'tbeastrangerbook.com. And then I'm, I'm really not on the social media side too much, except we, we are on LinkedIn. Lawrence Perkins is my name. Larry Perkins shows up on LinkedIn. So I appreciate it. Great. I'll make sure that all those links and URLs are on the show notes here so people can get that. Larry, thank you so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Bruce. You've been listening to Scaling Up Services with business coach Bruce Eckfeldt. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at scalingupservices.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at scalingupservices.com slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.